The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello, he's the man who gave us Ichabod Crane and Rip Van Winkle, and some other enduring pieces of Americana like the term Knickerbocker, used for New Yorkers, which led to the New York Knicks, and the idea of Santa flying over the treetops in a sleigh. He's the originator-slash-popularizer of the mistaken idea that Europeans before Columbus believed the world was flat. And Gotham City is a nickname for NYC. Well, we owe that to him as well, along with the phrase, the almighty dollar. Washington Irving wrote much and did much for American letters. He encountered nearly everyone in the literary world along the way, and he was widely beloved. Above all, he was a storyteller. We'll tell his story today on the history of literature. Okay, here we go. Hello, hello, hello. I'm Jack Wilson, your host. I'm glad you're here. Let's give Emily Dickinson the day off, shall we? Instead, we'll do a listener email and then we'll hear all about Washington Irving and then polish things off with a My Last Book. So, who's the right dessert? for our Washington Irving-based feast. How about one selected by Joe Skinner, the host of the podcast American Masters Creative Spark. Irving is certainly an American master with lots of creative spark, so maybe that'll be fitting. We'll see what Joe would like to be reading on that fateful day when the bell is tolling. But first, an email from Aditi, who is another repeat guest. We're checking in with Aditi. You might remember that Aditi wrote to us during the COVID-19 lockdown from India. She was pursuing a PhD in English literature from the University of Delhi. And she noted that I often say that I'm recording the episodes at 4 a.m. in the morning, which is when my house is quiet, sometimes the only time the house is quiet. And I wonder who in the world is going to wake up and listen. And Aditi said, I wake up at 3.45 every day to go for a walk precisely at 4 a.m. while listening to the history of literature, until the sun rises. She said that wasn't because I, Jack Wilson, record at 4, but because later in the day, it gets too hot. She asked for an episode or two on Godwin and Wollstonecraft. We've done a few of those now. And in general, it was a beautiful email that I was happy to share. And now Aditi has checked in again with some news. Dear Jack, I hope this email finds you well. I'm writing to you again after a gap of nearly three years, and I was so happy to hear my last email read out in the Beatrix Potter episode. I thought of writing to you several times after to give you an update on how things have been since I last wrote to you, but getting down to actually doing it today. In my previous email in 2020, I had mentioned being stuck in my hometown, Jaipur, in India during the COVID lockdown instead of being in Delhi for my PhD in English. Well, I never went back to Delhi University for the remainder of the degree, and instead made my exit after completing MPhil in English. Parentheses, Delhi University gives us an exit window at two years, where instead of continuing with the PhD, we can take the MPhil degree and leave if we are unsure about pursuing research. Close parentheses. Instead, I took a leap of faith 
and applied to universities outside India and am now pursuing my DPhil in English at Oxford, something that had only seemed like a dream a few years ago. I have moved to a country quite different from my own, and yet it feels very familiar and homelike. I have quickly assimilated myself into the student life at Oxford, which is dynamic, diverse, and simply amazing. I now go on my morning walks in the scenic and quiet streets of Oxford, weather permitting, and continue to listen to your podcasts. The music and opening lines of the episodes, your narration and voice take me back to my mornings at my terrace in Jaipur, even as I walk in the beautiful lanes here. And of course, I continue to make my own chai in the UK. I was just a few months old in the town when the Byron and Shelley episodes aired and the references to Oxford made them all the more exciting to me. Or when you have guest speakers from the Faculty of English at Oxford, I make sure I listen to the entire episode without interruption. My own research area is 18th century British women's writings, and I am working on Mary Wollstonecraft, Maria Edgeworth, Mary Robinson, and the English women radicals of the 1790s, and I have just completed my first year. However, life as a student here is quite busy, and I do not get the time to listen to all the episodes as regularly as I did at home, but I am trying to be more consistent. Sending all the best wishes for my favorite podcast, I hope it continues to inspire countless others like myself. All my emotions and feelings for the history of literature remain unchanged, and I look forward to all the new episodes. Best wishes, Aditi. Wow. Wow. Aditi, congratulations to you a thousand times over. Your generosity is too kind. I think I probably have more to learn from you than the other way around, but I'm glad that my enthusiasm, at least as unlearned as it is, has made the podcast a good companion for you on both sides of your journey, in India and at Oxford. I'm so proud of you, Aditi. It's not easy to take such a leap of faith, and I would have supported doing it no matter how it turned out, but it seems like you've made a soft landing. Best of luck to you. If you've even landed, actually, you made a soft soaring. (laughs) Still in the ascent. Best of luck to you, and thank you for taking me with you on all those walks. I haven't been to India in a while, or Oxford either, but both places are very special in my memory and my heart. I hope to return to both of them soon. In the meanwhile, I'll keep chattering away from this dungeon of a studio here in the Washington, D.C. area. Okay, let's take a quick break and then launch into the life of an American who did a whole lot of writing and a whole lot of traveling himself. Washington Irving, after this. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. 
The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Washington Irving was born in New York in 1783, and yes, he was named after George Washington, who was not yet president. He was still the commander-in-chief of the Continental Army, wrapping up the War of Independence. In fact, Washington Irving was born the same week that New York City learned that there had been a ceasefire and the war was over. Young Washington Irving met the great man when he was about to be inaugurated president. Irving was six and George Washington came to New York on his way to the inauguration. The about-to-be president blessed the young boy, which Irving later commissioned as a watercolor painting, showing the president-slash-commander-in-chief placing his hand upon young Irving's head. Little did the people in attendance know that the young boy would grow up to be— well, he didn't grow up to become as famous or almost as famous— as George Washington, hard to say that, but pretty famous in his own right. And he was also a man of firsts. Washington Irving was born into a big family. His father was originally from Scotland, his mother from England. In New York, they were merchants living in what is now basically the financial district of New York City. Irving was the youngest of eight surviving children with his eldest brother about 17 years older than him. Most of his brothers went into business as well, and they supported Washington Irving financially as he launched his writing career. It became er apparent early on that school was not going to be Irving's thing. He was uninterested in school, sneaking out of class so he could attend theater. He preferred adventure stories and dramas to anything that he was assigned in the classroom, and he also found thanks to an outbreak of yellow fever, which led to his being sent north up the Hudson River, that he loved the small towns and the countryside beauty of the Hudson River Valley. The area at the time was full of settlers of Dutch origin who brought with them superstitions and ghost stories. The Catskill Mountains, another place he went, Irving wrote, had a witching effect on my boyish imagination. He also fell in love with Terrytown and the area just north of it, which was officially called North Terrytown, but the Dutch called it Slapers Haven or Sleepers Haven, and which was renamed uh, Sleepy Hollow in 1996. The townspeople having finally succumbed to the pull of tourist dollars, almighty tourist dollars, let's say that Irving had generated for them with his story, The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. At 19, Irving began to submit letters and articles to newspapers under the name Jonathan Oldstyle, 
His talent was apparent immediately. Aaron Burr was a fan, as was Charles Brockton Brown, who came up from Philadelphia to try to recruit Irving for to write for a magazine, which Brown edited. Irving headed off to Europe to try to improve his health, taking a grand tour, but in whirlwind fashion. His, brother, his brothers financed the trip, and they wrote him letters accusing him of galloping through Italy. Leaving Florence on your left and Venice on your right, said the brother. Irving instead was enjoying the social scene more than the cultural and historical sites, impressing the locals with his cheerful disposition. He returned to New York and attempted to study law, but his interests were truly in literary matters, and he eventually switched to pursuing literature full-time. He created a magazine called Sal Magundi, which is also the name of a literary journal that exists today but is not continuous with Irving's. He invented the nickname Gotham for New York City around this time. Apparently, it comes from the Anglo-Saxon word for goat town. Sal Magundi, the literary journal, in Irving's uh, rendition of it, has been described as the early 19th century equivalent of Mad Magazine, meaning a lot of spoofs and satires. And then, after working on the magazine for a while, Irving got to work writing his first big success, a book called A History of New York from the Beginning of the World to the End of the Dutch Dynasty by Diedrich Knickerbocker. The book was a smash hit. Irving invented the character of Diedrich Knickerbocker, the pseudonym, and also invented the idea that Knickerbocker was a Dutch historian who had gone missing. And people believed that it was true, and New York City officials became so concerned that they offered a reward for his safe return. The book was so popular that Knickerbocker became a nickname for New Yorkers in general, and Irving became, in his own words, a celebrity. He noted that much of this was because it was still considered unusual for an American writer to put out an original work. The year was 1809, and publishing was still dominated by imports from Europe. Irving continued to earn his bread with historical-based writings, rattling off a series of biographies of various luminaries. He fell in love with a woman named Matilda, but she died suddenly, and he never got over it. He never married, and for the next few years after her death, he drifted around, moving to Washington, D.C. for a while, working on some isolated literary projects, but also here's where he turned to doing work for his his brother's firm, which they inherited from his father and which imported hardware. When the War of 1812 broke out, Irving opposed the war initially, but enlisted after the British attacked Washington, D.C. He didn't do much in the war other than go on a reconnaissance mission to the Great Lakes region, but the war affected his family, as it did for many New York merchants. Irving went to Europe to try to revive the import business on behalf of his family's firm, but that didn't work and the firm declared bankruptcy after about two years. Irving stayed in Europe, though. He was celebrated now as an American writer, a novelty for the Europeans as it had been for the Americans. Stayed there for 17 years total. Once again, he brought his geniality to dinner parties and was a popular guest. He met many famous writers of his day, like Walter Scott, 
who introduced him to John Murray, the famous publisher of Byron and Jane Austen. The two hit it off, and Murray became Irving's publisher in Europe. Irving rewarded him by writing some new stories and essays that were some of his best and some of his best-selling. Rip Van Winkle was the first big hit, followed closely a year later by The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. We're devoting an episode to Sleepy Hollow. We're going to read the whole story on Thursday, so let's save that one. But Rip Van Winkle is worth some time. I don't know if you've ever seen the Alfred Hitchcock movie, North by Northwest, but it encapsulates a kind of fear that a lot of people have, myself included. What if you woke up one day and you came downstairs, let's say to the breakfast table, and nobody knew who you were? What if everyone treated you like a stranger and you had no idea why? Or what if everyone believes you're someone else and you can't persuade them that you're not? Rip Van Winkle is a little like that. What if you were to fall fall asleep and wake up 20 years later? What would that feel like? What would you miss? How would you rejoin the rest of the world with that gap in your knowledge and experience? In Rip's case, he's a Dutch-American man, a bit lazy, who lives in upstate New York. He heads into the Catskills with some Dutchmen who drink strange liquor and play nine pins. And he gets drunk on their liquor, and when he wakes up, he finds that his musket has deteriorated, and he has a long gray beard. He heads back to his village and finds that the clothes that people are wearing are all different, and nobody recognizes him. He's been asleep for 20 years. And not just any 20 years. During this 20 years, the Revolutionary War has occurred. He fell asleep as a subject of King George III. He wakes up, and everyone is asking him, how he voted in the latest American election. The story wasn't the first one to feature someone who fell asleep for years and years. There are forerunners in several religious traditions, as well as ancient Greek stories and German folktales. China has had a version of this, and Japan and India. Nevertheless, the story in Irving's version struck a chord, and Rip Van Winkle has become a widespread shorthand for someone who missed part of life due to sleep or imprisonment or some kind of magic spell. Let's hear some of the story, Rip Van Winkle, and then we'll take a break and then we'll finish up the life of Washington Irving. So this is from Rip Van Winkle. This is the period uh, right where he falls asleep and when he wakes up. By degrees, Rip's awe and apprehension subsided. He even ventured, when no eye was fixed upon him, to taste the beverage which he found had much of the flavor of excellent Hollands. He was naturally a thirsty soul and was soon tempted to repeat the draft. One taste provoked another, and he reiterated his visits to the flagon so often that at length his senses were overpowered. His eyes swam in his head, his head gradually declined, and he fell into a deep sleep. On waking, he found himself on the green knoll whence he had first seen the old man of the glen. He rubbed his eyes. It was a bright, sunny morning. The birds were hopping and twittering among the bushes, and the eagle was wheeling aloft and breasting the pure mountain breeze. Surely, thought Rip, I have not slept here all night. He recalled the occurrences before he fell asleep. The strange man with a keg of liquor the mountain ravine, the wild retreat among the rocks, the woe-begone party at Ninepins, 
The flagon, oh, that flagon, that wicked flagon, thought Rip. What excuse shall I make to Dame Van Winkle? He looked round for his gun, but in place of the clean, well-oiled fowling piece, he found an old firelock lying by him, the barrel encrusted with rust, the lock falling off, and the stock worm-eaten. He now suspected that the grave roisterers of the mountains had put a trick upon him, and, having dosed him with liquor, had robbed him of his gun. Wolf, too, had disappeared, but he might have strayed away after a squirrel or partridge. He whistled after him and shouted his name, but all in vain. The echoes repeated his whistle and shout, but no dog was to be seen. He determined to revisit the scene of the last evening's gamble, and if he met with any of the party, to demand his dog and gun. As he rose to walk, he found himself stiff in the joints and wanting in his usual activity. These mountain beds do not agree with me, thought Rip, and if this frolic should lay me up with a fit of rheumatism, I shall have a blessed time with Dame Van Winkle. With some difficulty he got down into the glen. He found the gully up which he and his companion had ascended the preceding evening, but to his astonishment a mountain stream was now foaming down it, leaping from rock to rock, and filling the glen with babbling murmurs. He, however, made shift to scramble up its sides, working his toilsome way through thickets of birch, sassafras, and witch hazel, and sometimes tripped up or entangled by the wild grapevines that twisted their coils or tendrils from tree to tree, and spread a kind of network in his path. At last he reached to where the ravine had opened through the cliffs to the amphitheater, but no traces of such opening remained. The rocks presented a high, impenetrable wall, over which the torrent came tumbling in a sheet of feathery foam and fell into a broad, deep basin, black from the shadows of the surrounding forest. Here, then, poor Rip was brought to a stand. He again called and whistled after his dog. He was only answered by the cawing of a flock of idle crows, sporting high in the air about a dry tree that overhung a sunny precipice and who, secure in their elevation, seemed to look down and scoff at the poor man's perplexities. What was to be done? The morning was passing away, and Rip felt famished for want of his breakfast. He grieved to give up his dog and gun. He dreaded to meet his wife, but it would not do to starve among the mountains. He shook his head, shouldered the rusty firelock, and, with a heart full of trouble and anxiety, turned his steps homeward. As he approached the village, he met a number of people, but none of whom he knew, which somewhat surprised him, for he had thought himself acquainted with everyone in the country round. Their dress, too, was of a different fashion from that to which he was accustomed. They all stared at him with equal marks of surprise, and whenever they cast their eyes upon him, invariably stroked their chins. The constant recurrence of this gesture induced Rip involuntarily to do the same, when, to his astonishment, he found his beard had grown a foot long. He had now entered the skirts of the village. A troop of strange children ran at his heels, hooting after him and pointing at his gray beard. The dogs, too, not one of whom he recognized for an old acquaintance, barked at him as he passed. The very village was altered. It was larger and more populous. There were rows of houses which he had never seen before, and those which had been his familiar haunts had disappeared. Strange names were over the doors, strange faces at the windows. Everything was strange. 
His mind now misgave him. He began to doubt whether both he and the world around him were not bewitched. Surely this was his native village, which he had left but the day before. There stood the Catskill Mountains. There ran the Silver Hudson at a distance. There was every hill and dale precisely as it had always been. Rip was sorely perplexed. That flagon last night, thought he, has addled my poor head sadly. It was with some difficulty that he found the way to his own house, which he approached with silent awe, expecting every moment to hear the shrill voice of Dame Van Winkle. He found the house gone to decay. The roof had fallen in, the windows shattered, and the doors off the hinges. A half-starved dog that looked like Wolf was skulking about it. Rip called him by name, but the cur snarled, showed his teeth, and passed on. This was an unkind cut indeed. My very dog, sighed poor Rip, has forgotten me. He entered the house, which, to tell the truth, Dame Van Winkle had always kept in neat order. It was empty, forlorn, and apparently abandoned. This desolateness overcame all his connubial fears. He called loudly for his wife and children. The lonely chambers rang for a moment with his voice, and then all again was silence. He now hurried forth and hastened to his old resort, the village inn, but it too was gone. A large, rickety wooden building stood in its place, with great gaping windows, some of them broken and mended with old hats and petticoats, and over the door was painted The Union Hotel by Jonathan Doolittle. Instead of the great tree that used to shelter the quiet little Dutch inn of yore, there now was reared a tall, naked pole with something on the top that looked like a red nightcap, and from it was fluttering a flag on which was a singular assemblage of stars and stripes. All this was strange and incomprehensible. He recognized on the sign, however, the ruby face of King George, under which he had smoked so many a peaceful pipe, but even this was singularly metamorphosed. The red coat was changed for one of blue and buff. A sword was held in the hand instead of a scepter. The head was decorated with a cocked hat, and underneath was painted in large characters, General Washington. There was, as usual, a crowd of folk about the door, but none that Rip recollected. The very character of the people seemed changed. There was a busy, bustling, disputatious tone about it, instead of the accustomed phlegm and drowsy tranquility. He looked in vain for the sage Nicholas Vedder, with his broad face, double chin, and fair long pipe, uttering clouds of tobacco smoke instead of idle speeches, or Van Bommel, the schoolmaster, doling forth the contents of an ancient newspaper. In place of these, a lean, bilious-looking fellow, with his pockets full of handbills, was haranguing vehemently about rights of citizens, elections, members of Congress, liberty, Bunker's Hill, heroes of 76, and other words, which were a perfect Babylonish jargon to the bewildered Van Winkle. The appearance of Rip, with his long, grizzled beard, his rusty fowling piece, his uncouth dress, and an army of women and children at his heels— soon attracted the attention of the tavern politicians. They crowded round him, eyeing him from head to foot with great curiosity. The orator bustled up to him and, drawing him partly aside, inquired on which side he voted. Rip stared in vacant stupidity. 
Another short but busy little fellow pulled him by the arm and, rising on tiptoe, inquired in his ear whether he was federal or Democrat. Rip was equally at a loss to comprehend the question, when a knowing, self-important old gentleman in a sharp cocked hat made his way through the crowd, putting them to the right and left with his elbows as he passed, and planting himself before Van Winkle, with one arm akimbo, the other resting on his cane, his keen eyes and sharp hat penetrating, as it were, into his very soul, demanded in an austere tone what brought him to the election with a gun on his shoulder and a mob at his heels, and whether he meant to breed a riot in the village. "'Alas, gentlemen!' cried Rip, somewhat dismayed. I am a poor, quiet man, a native of the place, and a loyal subject of the king, God bless him. Here a general shout burst from the bystanders. A Tory! A Tory! A spy! A refugee! Hustle him! Away with him! It was with great difficulty that the self-important man in the cocked hat restored order, and, having assumed a tenfold austerity of brow, demanded again of the unknown culprit what he came there for and whom was he seeking. The poor man humbly assured him that he meant no harm, but merely came there in search of some of his neighbors, who used to keep about the tavern. Well, who are they? Name them. Rip bethought himself a moment and inquired, Where's Nicholas Vetter? There was a silence for a little while, when an old man replied in a thin, piping voice, "'Nicholas Vetter? Why, he is dead and gone these eighteen years. "'There was a wooden tombstone in the churchyard that used to tell all about him, "'but that's rotten and gone, too. "'Where's Brom Dutcher?' "'Oh, he went off to the army in the beginning of the war. "'Some say he was killed at the storming of Stony Point. "'Others say he was drowned in a squall at the foot of Antony's nose. "'I don't know. He never came back again. "'Where's Van Bummel, the schoolmaster?' He went off to the wars, too, was a great militia general, and is now in Congress. Rip's heart died away at hearing of these sad changes in his home and friends, and finding himself thus alone in the world. Every answer puzzled him, too, by treating of such enormous lapses of time, and of matters which he could not understand. War, Congress, Stony Point. He had no courage to ask after any more friends, but cried out in despair, Does nobody here know Rip Van Winkle? Oh, Rip Van Winkle, exclaimed two or three. Oh, to be sure, that's Rip Van Winkle yonder, leaning against the tree. Rip looked and beheld a precise counterpart of himself as he went up the mountain apparently as lazy and certainly as ragged. The poor fellow was now completely confounded. He doubted his own identity, and whether he was himself or another man. In the midst of his bewilderment, the man in the cocked hat demanded who he was, and what was his name. "'God knows!' exclaimed he, at his wit's end. "'I'm not myself. I'm somebody else. That's me yonder. No, that's somebody else got into my shoes. I was myself last night, but I fell asleep on the mountain, and they've changed my gun, and everything's changed, and I can't tell what's my name or who I am.' The bystanders began now to look at each other, nod, wink significantly, and tap their fingers against their foreheads. There was a whisper also about securing the gun and keeping the old fellow from doing mischief, at the very suggestion of which the self-important man in the cocked hat retired with some precipitation. 
At this critical moment, a fresh, comely woman pressed through the throng to get a peep at the gray-bearded man. She had a chubby child in her arms, which, frightened at his looks, began to cry. "'Hush, Rip,' cried she. "'Hush, you little fool. The old man won't hurt you.' The name of the child, the air of the mother, the tone of her voice all awakened a train of recollections in his mind. "'What is your name, my good woman?' asked he. "'Judith Gardiner.' And your father's name? Ah, poor man, Rip Van Winkle was his name, but it's twenty years since he went away from home with his gun and never has been heard of since. His dog came home without him. But whether he shot himself or was carried away by the Indians, nobody can tell. I was then but a little girl. Rip had but one question more to ask, but he put it with a faltering voice. Where's your mother? Oh, she too had died, but a short time since. She broke a blood vessel in a fit of passion at a New England peddler. There was a drop of comfort, at least, in this intelligence. The honest man could contain himself no longer. He caught his daughter and her child in his arms. I am your father, cried he. Young Rip Van Winkle once, old Rip Van Winkle now. Does nobody know poor Rip Van Winkle? We'll stop there. For the rest of the story, you'll need to keep reading on your own. We will return with more on Washington Irving after this. Here's a great what might have been in literary history. We left Washington Irving in England. Well, Mary Shelley, whose husband Percy had died, expressed a romantic interest in him when he was there, and he did not pursue the relationship. One can only imagine what we would now be doing for Halloween if the author of Frankenstein and the author of The Headless Horseman had been lovers. We'd probably be celebrating them as... Halloween's OG power couple. Or we wouldn't be doing that. <laughs> or we'd leave it to miserable hacks like Jack Wilson to make the point on his little podcast. Well, hey, hey, <laughs> oh, little Jack. Hey, everyone, listen to this. Washington Irving and Mary Shelley were, yes, Jackie, we know. No, but uh, I mean, one wrote Sleepy Hollow and the other, these people are icons. Yes, Jackie, yes. There's a good boy. Irving went to Spain after he left England. He had access when he was in Spain to a huge collection of books about Spanish history, thanks to a relationship he had with the American minister to Spain. He, he dove into those books looking for anecdotes, amusing ideas, little nuggets, and he ended up writing a slew of history books, including a history of Columbus that was part fact and part fiction. It included the false story, as I mentioned at the opening, that the medieval European mind believed the earth was flat, and Columbus proved to them that the earth was round. It's a story that has been very hard to stamp out. And Irving, he, he gets a lot of credit for writing readable and popular history books, for knowing how to tell a good story and find a good anecdote, but they're not always 
completely accurate, but they've there's a, enough accuracy in them that you learn about history and you enjoy the experience, but they're not well regarded for their strict accuracy today. The success of Rip Van Winkle and Sleepy Hollow encouraged Irving to make his living solely by writing. He traveled through Europe writing histories and biographies and rewriting folktales and legends. He was a great success in Spain, popular there once again. Really, he was well-received just about everywhere he went, including New York, which he returned to at the age of 49. He was famous now, still famous as the American who could write as well as Europeans, and a flood of younger generation American writers sought his approval and assistance, including Edgar Allan Poe, who didn't totally respect Irving as a writer, but he did appreciate what he had done for American letters, both as someone who had proven that an American could be a writer on a par with Europeans, and also for Irving's work to strengthen America's copyright laws, which, once strengthened, helped writers earn their keep. Ironically, one of the criticisms of Irving, the first American man of letters, was that he had become too European, thanks to his long stints in Europe, including a four-year stretch in his late 50s and early 60s when he was appointed minister to Spain. By the time of Irving's death, he was lionized by the American public and general observers, although this hungry new generation of writers, Poe and Whitman and Hawthorne and Melville, were eager to prove that they could do better. America was greatly affected by Irving and his works. It was as if he took the baton from George Washington, politician, and began work on filling in the fledgling nation's cultural and mythological gaps. This is who we are. This is what we celebrate. This is who we should be. Themes like that kind of run through Irving's tales of upstate New York. One gets to the point when reading about Irving's life where one stops being surprised by the cameo appearances of famous pieces of American history. Francis Scott Key, for example, wrote a poem that became the lyrics to the national anthem. Well, Irving was one of the first editors to publish that poem in his literary magazine. And you think, well, of course he was. Halloween today wouldn't be the same without Irving. We'll have more on that next episode. And Christmas wouldn't either. In his History of New York, he included a dream sequence with St. Nicholas flying over the treetops in a wagon. This image morphed into Santa and his sleigh. Irving ended up tired and a little weary of life and politics. His cheerful disposition finally began to give way to the ravages of age. Here's a quote, kind of a sad one. Quote, I am wearied and at times heartsick of the wretched politics of this country. The last 10 or 12 years of my life passed among sordid speculators in the United States and political adventurers in Spain has shown me so much of the dark side of human nature that I begin to have painful doubts of my fellow man and look back with regret to the confiding period of my literary career when, poor as a rat, but rich in dreams, I beheld the world through the medium of my imagination and was apt to believe men as good as I wished them to be. End quote. I've been that guy 
wearied and heartsick at the wretched politics of this country. I've been around the dark side of human nature. I've been poor as a rat. And I'd like to think I've been rich in dreams and inclined to believe men as good as I wish them to be. In all of this, Irving has been a forerunner. And thankfully for American letters, Irving did have that stretch where he believed in men being good and where his dreams were very rich indeed. And finally today, we turn to Joe Skinner. After I talked to Joe about the creative process, I asked him a special question. We are here with Joe Skinner, host of the podcast American Masters Creative Spark. Joe, welcome back to the History of Literature. This question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose a book that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. I thought long and hard about this question, and uh, I think I have to answer with The Power Broker. Ooh. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, good. I've read that. (laughs) Robert Caro's sort of magisterial biography of someone that most people think they wouldn't have any interest in reading, and then they start the book and they can't put it down. Robert Moses. Exactly. And, you know, part of the reason I picked it is because it's been sitting on my bookshelf forever and it's over 1200 pages long and I really want to read it before I go. And, (laughs) you know, in the show I do, I'm really focused on creative process. And I really love the idea of writing a 1200 page tomb covering somebody whose process is on something that's very invisible to the public and is yet very influential and impactful on the public. And so I'm really excited to read it. Yeah, you do come away from reading that book and thinking, you know, I think it was a Garrison Keillor line where he visited Ann Arbor at the University of Michigan. And, and he said, you know, Ann Arbor is the kind of place where where people show up for committee meetings and they stay until the end. And <laughs> and you realize all of these things that we kind of take for granted. How is how are the roads laid out and and how nice are the parks and what's being prepared for us to live in here in this location? And you realize Moses was just this incredible force, sometimes for good and sometimes not for good, but to have the kind of impact he had on New York City for as long as he did and outlast all those mayors and everything. It really is fascinating to see and to watch Caro, so to speak, kind of put it all together in this book. Yeah, I mean, so that's why it's my pick. And I can't, I don't want it to be my last book, though. I hope to read it sooner than that. Yeah. But if I had to choose, that's my last book. <laughs> well, here's, here's the danger. We talked about this when you were here to talk about Creative Spark. A lot of times you read a book like that and then you're inspired or you talk to a guest or you do something else and then you're inspired to go out and do stuff. You might read that book and think, I got a lot more life I want to live. I've got things I want to change. I've got, you know, big processes. <laughs> I want to impact and and have a, a big influence, you might feel like, boy, I read this too late in life. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. <laughs> okay, Joe Skinner, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you. Mm, 
Okay, there we go. Maybe the two most central figures, central New Yorkers of their respective centuries, Washington Irving, a foundational figure of the 19th century, and Robert Moses, who dominated the 20th. One could make the case. Speaking of making the case, we will be back next time with a full reading of The Legend of Sleepy Hollow. You'll hear just how terrifying that story is. I mean, I don't mean to say that it's terrifying. I mean, you'll hear the degree of terror that that story imparts, which is, it's not exactly watching The Exorcist alone in a dark house kind of scary, but it's got some thrills. You'll also hear the humor. It's a funny story with that Mad Magazine type of satire, a highly literate version of it anyway, applied to Ichabod Crane, school teacher and would-be suitor. We will also have a conversation with an expert in Homer coming up soon and one with a former winner of the Booker Prize. Mm-mm-mm, kind of a celebrity, although not our first, I don't think. Well, Booker Prize, maybe so, actually. I'd have to check. We've certainly had some shortlisted people, some guests who have been on the shortlist of the Booker Prize, like Chigozi Obioma and Tan Tuan Eng. But this is an actual winner. There haven't been too many of those over the years. One of them will be joining us right here on the Humble Little Podcast. Sneak preview for you. (laughs) I won't tell you his or her name yet, but I will tell you mine is kind of a a consolation prize of the booby variety. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.